out of Oklahoma City, you're listening to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where movies are more than just 90 minutes in a bucket of popcorn. The Good Trash Genre Cast is a member of the Good Trash Media family. For more information, go to goodtrashmedia.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where people gather around a table and we discuss the films that will never, and I do indeed repeat this week, never make their way into a film studies course. This week's film is not Flatlanders, even though we do live in the great state of Oklahoma. It is Flatliners, which turns out not to be The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. Across the Eighth Dimension, called by its full Christian name. I'm sorry. I, I, I did. I, you know what? You cannot offend the gods. No, you can't, which is what Flatliners ended up being about. Yeah, somehow. Somehow. Uh, so, yeah, we... Dustin and I both uh, were actually really excited to watch Buckaroo Banzai because we'd never seen it. Um, but as soon as we went to watch it, it turns out it went off streaming. And um, it's pretty hard to find for rental even. Um, like, it's, it is it is a hard movie to find. So uh, we called an audible uh, with uh, the uh, forthcoming pseudo-sequel, pseudo-remake Flatliners starring Ellen Page and Diego Luna coming out later this year. Uh I've been meaning to watch uh, 1990s Flatliners for quite some time, so we figured, hey, why not? Let's let's just do this. What so. ended up happening was um, Peter Weller was dead on the table for us as an option, and we had resuscitated Stop. Stop. as Kevin Bacon. Ooh, that was good. Uh, <laughs> man, Ooh, that was that was something else I was not ready for. Um, so yeah, that's what we did. Uh, I feel like it was a good call. I'm not mad I watched this movie. Uh, so uh, before we get into it too far, though, you should probably know who you're talking to. Oh, I yeah. Guess. Who are you, man? Well, my name's Dalton Stewart, and uh, hey... Uh, Hey, Dustin. Hey, what? You bring the equipment, I'll bring my balls. Okay. Um, which is weird because I actually have all the equipment here. Uh, my name's Dustin Sells, Hokaheya, and uh, glad to be here. Okay. Uh, Does not actually mean it's a good day to die. Yeah, no, no. It's more of a yeehaw. More of a yeehaw. Yeah. Um, Kiantahe is a way you can say it in uh, Kiowa. Almost oh, I didn't know that. Almost the same idea. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, the, the, it, it is a general, like, let's fucking get it. Yeah, do your worst is sort of what um, Keontae kind of means. But yeah. I think, I forget, ex- I know that there is a rough translation of Hokahe, but it's kind of one of those things that's like, uh, not there's not a direct translation, if I remember right. And that's actually not even the right way to say it. Yeah, and weirdly, there's an old gospel song called mm-hmm. Hoya Heya, Hoya Heya, Hallelujah. Interesting. That's a thing that exists um, in the uh, black Southern gospel tradition. Well, that's interesting. But anyway... Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm always amused when Hoka Hay comes up, though. Yeah. Uh, I like it when it when uh, it's featured in non-Western films. But, uh, yeah, that's what we watched. Uh, I'm Dalton. Who, who are you, bud? Uh, I'm still Dustin. Oh, yeah, that's right. You already did that. So uh, we're here, and we're going to do what we always do. Dustin, what is it that we do here? What we do here is we do analysis. Oh, it is? It is not a review show. Oh, man, 200-some-odd episodes. You think I'd have figured that out. No, no, no. So in review shows, though, they will um, do everything they can, or like a review you might read on the Internet, would do everything it can to avoid spoiling the show in question. We don't actually do that here, Dalton. Yeah, well, no, we don't care about that. So what we do instead is we try to avoid spoilers, though, so we can uh, at least invite the audience in in case they haven't seen the film. And so um, what we'll do is we'll give you a brief reprieve from spoilerage. What we'll have is a synopsis from the voice of the Dalton Theater brought to you by our very own Dalton Stewart. Hi, that boy. Um, and then after that, we will give our quick thumbs up, thumbs down review. So there is a little bit of that review thing, but it's, I mean, it's 10 minutes of the show, honestly. And so we do that. Then we play a game. which will be inspired by the film which might involve a mild spoiler of the film in question or of other films in its orbit depending on how we go about 
our gameplay. And then once we get down to business and we have a little business time musical cue to help you know that, dear listener. But once we get down to business, all spoiler bets are off. We're going to tell you who dies, who lives, how many, you know, um, how many bobsleds. Luke Skywalker was able to find from his father Hagrid's house. Um, that's the kind of thing that we do at that point. So um, you have been warned regarding all of that. Now, without any further ado, though, let's go ahead and hear that synopsis um, uh, via IMDb from the voice of the Dalton Theater. <coughs> Thank you, Dustin. You're welcome, sir. Written by IMDb user Miss W.J. McDermott. Four medical students experiment on near-death experiences that involve past tragedies until the dark consequences begin to jeopardize their lives. Uh, yeah. A um, bunch of kids aside, we know it would be fun. It would be fun to die and come back and tell people about it. Yeah. The, the phenomenon of the near-death experience. Yeah, they're uh, they're necronauts. Yeah, necronauts. I guess that's a good word for it. Uh, I don't think I came up with that. I'm pretty sure I got that from something else. That but is, thank you. Hmm, that is an interesting term. It is um, very much inspired by Unsolved Mysteries of the time, I would think, as Unsolved Mysteries had a lot of these sort of near-death experience uh, kind of pieces um, tied in. When they, when yeah. they got a little, bit, when they got a little right. less true crimey and they got a little bit more supernaturally. That's a good point. Right? And so it became more Bigfoot. Was that as early as the... I thought that would have been in the mid to late 90s that they started doing that. That was as early as the late ni- late 80s? Uh, as, l- as early as the late 80s. They were, fu- they were they were already moving their way into, into that. Into that kind of thing. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, and it's weird that you bring that up because, I, well, I guess now we'll go ahead and talk about what we think about the film overall. It's funny you bring that up because I didn't make the connection watching it. But as soon as you said Unsolved Mysteries, I was like, oh, damn, this movie does kind of look like an Unsolved Mysteries episode. Yeah, Just in terms of the look of the film. Right. It's got that look of a... Uh, a true crime reenactment almost. It does, except for perhaps the exception being some of those uh, very, very surreal experiences. Yes, where, during uh, the near-death experiences. Yeah, yeah. And, and Joel Schumacher really, really gets stylist, stylish and stylistic with that. Yeah, I read a little bit about that, and they um, that was a, definitely an intentional choice that Jan uh, uh, de Bont, who did the cinematography on this film, who you'd know uh, as the director of the film... Um, uh, Twister, Jan uh, de Bont, I guess he was told really like, hey, like let's lean into... Cinematography uh, speaking, cinema, cinematographically speaking, that's correct. There we go. Um, let's go ahead and lean into that more. Kind of those. Let's go for some weird push-ins and some weird swoops. And yeah, let's. And the, I guess that was an. Act and then choice. let's light the dog out yeah. of this movie. But yeah, Yon, the light Yon, is great. I want to go ahead and start there because um, I mean, you might not know the name, but he was a cinematographer on Die Hard, The Hunt for Red October, uh, at least one or two Lethal Weapon movies, uh, Basic Instinct. Um, was the director of Twister um, and a couple of other films like, uh, oh, fuck, I forgot this. He directed Speed and Speed 2. Whoa. Yeah. Um, real short director. Doesn't look like that movie. No, it doesn't. Uh, but, yeah, he's, he has like 60 cinematography credits. I mean, he he worked. He, he worked a lot. So uh, always great. I, I'm always excited to see a Yonder Bont movie. Just because I think he had a really good eye, and um, I miss him. I, I like uh, I was like he, his work. Was he on Schumacher's crew for Lost Boys? Do you happen to know? I don't. I'm, I'm looking at it. No, it does not appear. But you're right. It does kind of have a similar look to Lost Boys. It does. Well, I mean, obviously the same director and yes. the same star. Yeah, and I think that my I think that that look similarity is a director thing, not a cinematography thing. Because yeah, as far as I'm seeing here, he did not do uh, cinematography for The Lost Boys, which we've also done on the show. We have. How about the performances, though? Yeah, let's go ahead and talk about those. Um, I was really, uh, really pleased with everybody's performance in this film. Yeah, ever, everybody kills it. I mean, Billy Baldwin has a least to do, mm-hmm. but he does what he does even well. He does know? it pretty well, yeah. I would say that um, 
I think Oliver Platt has a little bit less to do. I think he has the least to do. Well, I mean, he doesn't get to die. Yeah, but he's he's there to be the well. He, when Kevin Bacon stops being the voice of reason, he kind of becomes the timid voice of reason. Yeah. Um, Kevin Bacon is great in this film. Kevin is. Good. I love Kevin Bacon in this. Uh, Kiefer, I don't, I don't, I like Kiefer in this. I don't love him. I Kiefer, think he's doing okay. Yeah, Kiefer's doing '80s hero Kiefer. Yeah, but uh, really, really impressed with Kevin Bacon and Julia Roberts and uh, Baldwin. I, I would say I'm actually more impressed with Baldwin than Kiefer Sutherland, which is surprising. And I think that's because I don't expect as much from Billy Baldwin as I do from Kiefer Sutherland. So that that kind of I think tempered how I was uh, viewing their performances. But again, not, I'm not trying to poo-poo Christopher, or uh, I'm not trying to poo-poo uh, Kiefer too much because he is good. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's, he's good. good. I just, I expected more, I guess, from him. You know, there's an interesting directorial choice um, from Schumacher because um, Baldwin's character is the uh, uh, um, man whore, is what I think I'm going to say. He, he, he's, he's an unethical slut. Unethical, okay, unethical slut. There yeah, you go. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Because uh, I, I, I want to make it very clear that we're not trying to shame anyone for being uh, promiscuous with their sexuality, but he's an asshole. Yeah, he's not a nice person no, about he's, it. He's a, he's a real uh, playboy about it, as it yeah, were. Yeah, um, he's... Well, he's he's filming women uh, having sex with him without their consent, right? Which um, is a real gross thing it's to do. Not okay. So no, not okay. and the film does not think it's. Okay. I think the film makes it very clear, very quick, that it does not like this behavior about him. And one of the things that the film does that I find to be really interesting, and this this may um, just come in part from uh, Schumacher's own homosexuality. And it may come from just his ability to sort of find a way that we can think differently about the character. Mm-hmm. But um, of, of there's close-ups that happen of the medical procedures as people are being brought back uh, mm-hmm. from the dead. When Billy Baldwin's brought back, the very first shot we have is a close-up of his nipple. Yeah. Strangely. I, I remembered thinking that, and I was like, one, Billy Baldwin has a very long nipple. Two... <laughs> that is a very tight shot on and a man's nipple. And an interesting choice, I thought. I His near-death experience is actually one of my favorites. Um, his is the most surreal. Yeah, it's, it's, it's well-directed, again, and it's, and it's very well... Um, the, the effects, it dissolves between the different yeah, they're really um, bits cool. of shot that he's using. Oh, well, yeah. sometime, and I like that they're kind of different. They're not actually the same for everybody. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about what I think that means in analysis. Um, but one thing I did really appreciate about it was... So for Kiefer's near-death experience, right, it's just a cut to black, and then we cut back in on this field, right? Um, For Billy's, there's like this pinpoint of light, right? And it kind of expands, and it's like a a blackness. It's not even a a bright light at the end of a tunnel. It's a pinpoint of like black and white film. And you're like, what's that? And it kind of expands. It's not like a full like ellipse or whatever. I don't know what the word to use here. It doesn't like... It's not like that pinpoint expands to fill up the screen. It just kind of cut fades out and then fades back on. We have full images, and it's just these images of women in his life and um, and their bodies. The, the tying of his relationship with his his mother to his relationship, his sexual relationships with women, I think, is really cool. And that's just again, we can talk more about that analysis. But from a purely uh, craft standpoint, I really like the way that shot. I really like what it says about his character without ever like beating uh, beating it to death. Um, really in- enjoyed that. Um, I, I'm, I, I struggle to even remember um, aspects of Julia Roberts other than what she sees. But to me, the one that really stood out was Baldwin's. Yeah, the the, the, the color red. I mean, again, I think this is really of, cool. The, the light coating is pretty heavy with uh, with Julia Roberts. It looks cool, but it's a little on the nose. Right. Yeah, I, I think so. But um, yeah, I, I think um, I, I'm I'm here to agree with you that I think all the choices visually for the near death experiences are really cool. 
Um, again, I like this this kind of seamy look the film has. One thing that I, I think is weird that they touch on but then don't do anything with, the hospital they're working at seems to be kind of a shithole. It's the most decrepit hospital ever. Yeah, like well, you know, the, the hospital is like... decrepit, and then the patients are all either suffering drug overdoses or back alley abortions. But then they don't bring it. It's, that's the opening of the movie is Kevin Bacon, like, in the, the fucking thick of it in the ER. And then we never bring up, like, they, they make a point to establish that the hospital is real dumpy. And then never do anything with that again. Well, I think in terms of set design, it's really kind of brilliant because it does have very much a feel of like this cross between a uh, an old art museum and a church. Yeah, it's kind of neo gothic. Yeah, yeah, and I, I like that. I liked it visually. I'm saying thematically. It doesn't make sense. It, it, well, why establish for me that this is a real like dumpy hospital and then not really engage with that at all? Right, it's kind of a weird choice. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of that. I think when the film pick something to say it's a little too on the nose about it and when it's saying things either on accident or things that it doesn't want to engage with too much um it's some of the more interesting things and just kind of goes by the wayside i think the best compliment i can give this film is that it made me really excited to see the uh, the pseudo remake pseudo sequel that's coming out this fall um i'm excited about that i th- i'm a big believer that I, I i am not against um adaptations and reboots and remakes like as a rule i'm actually pretty open to them um for for instance, next week uh, we'll see there are probably by the time you're hearing it, uh, this, by the time you're hearing this episode, um, you will be hot on the uh, tales of uh, the release of War for the Planet of the Apes. And oh, yeah. I love those movies. Yeah, and I think on paper you say, why are we doing another Planet of the Apes remake reboot? Um, so I think that right there is a good example of, no, just because it sounds like a bad idea doesn't mean it is. I, I think the best films to remake and reboot are films like Flatliners that have a really cool central hook, but don't really. And again, as nice as we've been to Flatliners, I don't think it's that special. Yeah. So, I, but for whatever that for that said, for whatever it's worth, I am. It makes me excited for this new movie because I think those are movies we should be remaking. Movies with really cool central hooks that don't that people remember but don't really have much of a feeling about. Um, so I think this is kind of the perfect film to do a, a, a late sequel or a, a, a remake uh, of. So it got me excited for it at the very least. So I th- I'd say that's a, a fairly successful film right there. Yeah, it made me want to see it as well. So I'm in the same boat. I, I'm with you also. I do think uh, the performances are all good. I think uh, the direction is good. And uh, it does have some weird bits and pieces here and there. It does have, I think, some structural problems in terms of implotment. Mm-hmm. But for the most part... It's, two hours is too long for this movie. It was two hours of the same. It's two hours of just the same yeah. thing. This, this really could have been trimmed down to a, a tight 145, yeah. 150. Variations on a singular theme. It is a little on the nose when it wants to say anything rather than finding ways to make space and say something different. I, I like the score overall in the movie. Mm-hmm. but the, And I, Schumacher's got a thing for choral voices mm-hmm. and, and in this particular film way too on the nose it feels yeah a little bit much which is fine you know we've talked about this a lot you and i over the last five years I, i'm not overly against things being on the nose but eh, sometimes it just rubs me the wrong way right well th- this is a particular set of themes and we'll get into this in analysis that i think subtlety and ambiguity would be helpful. yeah when, when dealing with religion and the afterlife i think if you're going to tackle those subjects, it's better to be a, a little bit less uh, point blank and a little less concrete and a little bit more uh, ethereal and, and effusive and evasive and uh, other E words that sound smart. Yeah, or just abstract, yeah, about it in general. I was trying to keep it with E words. Oh, I'm sorry. I had an A word. That's fine. You, you're, you are an A word. I am an A word. I've been told that. Um, so, yeah, we like it okay. 
yeah, it's, uh, that's all right. So I ain't mad about it. Our, our biases are generally all right. I mean, I, I guess it would be the best way to describe how we think. All right, let's do this and keep on doing this. It was a perfect Saturday afternoon movie. Yeah, very good for that. So here's the thing, though, Dalton. You know, we're doing this thing right now. We're having this conversation. Yeah. Huh? We'd be doing this anyway. That's true. I mean, because we're buds. Yeah. Just like these medical students would be having near-death experiences anyway, whether they ever told anybody about them, because uh, they're doing it for fun. That's just the kind of people that they are. Yeah, th- this is the kind of people we are. And But we don't want this to be just us. No, I prefer it if it wasn't. So how do we keep that from happening? Well, there's a couple of ways we could uh, encourage the listener to keep it from just being a, a vacuum of you and I. Um, that is, first of all, and first and foremost, the one we use the most, uh, Twitter. That's going to be uh, twitter.com, at uh, good underscore trash. Um, that is the Twitter handle for all good trash media content. Although that content is mostly the good trash genre cast these days. We're not doing a whole lot of other uh, projects right now. Uh, but again, we'll engage with you in any way you want on Twitter at good underscore trash. We're also on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash GTM. And uh, finally, do that thing that every podcast asks you to do. Go to iTunes, rate and review the show. You can do it on Stitcher Radio, too. I know people like that. I, I'm uh, I'm an iPhone guy, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm using that old podcast app. But, uh, yeah, do those things, please. Um, you know, if you like the show and you want to give us money, you can go to Patreon. We need to update that. Um, that's going to be really out of the goodness of your own heart. We're, we're not really delivering on anything right now. So uh, we're going to reformat that here in the next uh, three to four months probably. But uh, if you want to, if this show means a lot to you and you want to, you know, keep the lights on, that, that's that's fine. I don't care. Um, I'm, I'm going to keep doing it either way. So, um, But it'd be nice. Yeah, it would be much appreciated, but don't feel like it's in any way required. Though. But that's another way you can connect with us. If that's you know, if you don't really feel like talking but you do want to support us, you can throw us some money. Do you want to send us something? Do you have, like, weird fan art of us? I'm into it. I, I'm totally into that. Yeah, actually, I'm super into it. If you want to – you just send it to us. Yeah, any way you want to engage with us, I'm there for it. Um, I probably won't hang out with you. I don't like that. I probably will do that. Dustin will. I, you know, I don't. I don't do that. No, no. he really doesn't. Mm, Honestly, you, you wouldn't like it anyway, dear listener. I'm kind of hard to hang out with. He really is unpleasant. Yeah, I talk a lot. <laughs> I talk a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Hey, you know what? But then if we go out in public, I won't say a fucking word. <laughs> it's weird for somebody that like spends so much time in front of a microphone, either uh, on the internet or in live performances. You'd think I'd be a more chatty guy. But no. No, not really. Uh, only in the the privacy and comfort of my own home, usually. Right. Well, we have to drive that chat with, like, particular formatting. Like, perhaps the formatting is about to happen right now, because you know what it is? It's time to play the game. Time to play the game. Time to play the game! And we're back with our game this week, which is our favorite cinematic scientific experiments. That's right. Favorite cinematic scientific experiments brought to you by Flatliners. Flatliners. It really would have been easier for them to just smoke a DMT. <laughs> Fair enough. That was good. I did not know what I was going to say for that. That was funny. I am very pleased with myself. Um, so, yeah, we're going to talk. I mean, this is a film, the central crux of the plot being a scientific experiment so we're going to talk about that yeah i'm going to open up with an oldie but a goodie that's bride of frankenstein and i don't yeah. mean the monster or the bride i mean the tiny table toy people the tiny table toy people oh, are hilarious. they're so funny uh so if you've never gotten around to uh 1935 something in there 30 1930 <laughs> 1930 <laughs> um 
if you haven't gotten around to that that uh, Bride of Frankenstein, the, the second Frankenstein uh, film, the second Node one, is there another one? Other oh, there, there's a couple before that in the twenties. Yeah, well, um, famously, uh, Thomas Edison made a Frankenstein. That's movie. right. So okay, the 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 most the second of the more notable of the Universal films. Cycle. Yes. Um, so they there is a sequence in that film that is just a pure comedic break, a pure spectacle special effects break where they're like, hey, did you know we can take actors and make it look like they're on a table and tiny? Let's do that. Like, it has no connection to the plot of the film None whatsoever. It is a, the weirdest digression, and it is so funny and so delightful uh, and really kind of, to this day, pretty impressive as a special effect. It almost, you know, all, damn near 100 years later, it still looks astonishing. So that's that's my my first one. What's uh, what's the first one that comes to mind for you? Uh, my first is a uh, it is an experiment gone wrong. Oh, okay, and it is a uh, teleportation experiment gone terribly wrong. Uh, I know which one. In, in, yeah. in which a naked Jeff Goldblum uh-huh. um, is going to teleport himself from one pod to another pod, but mistakenly, as he is uh, DNA is being um, dematerialized, rematerialized, a single housefly makes it inside the pod with him, and he turns into something of a human fly in. <laughs> David Cronenberg's remake, The Fly. Brundlefly. Brundlefly. He becomes Brundlefly. Um, you know, I've never seen that. What? I know, man. Uh, I've oh, we've never been doing got... this podcast all wrong. Yeah, but I feel like the reason we've probably never done that is because it's it, kind of good for it us. Is notably a good film. Um, I want to go ahead and throw a little love to a very small film that is decidedly good trash. Uh, and that is the film Exam from 2009. Okay. Um, it very much feels like a feature-length Twilight Zone episode. It's a social experiment. Uh, it is about, uh, I want to say, seven or eight people uh, fi- are taking a test for a very high-power pharmaceutical job um, in a world where there is an ever-present virus, and this pharmaceutical company is the only people making the cure to the virus, and it's just a treatment. It's not a cure. Um, and you will find out throughout the film that the job is going to be... Um, instrumental in developing a cure um so it's a very high power job um so they sit down for this written exam and it uh there's nothing on the paper nothing at all and they have an hour to complete the exam or 90 minutes to complete the exam and the papers are entirely blank and there's some other rules that they have about they can't leave the room uh they can't soil the paper i can't remember all of them but it's super fun it's a lot of fun i really enjoy it um a really strong good trash film, actually. Um, you know, it's it's nothing overly special, but it is a tightly wound, tightly made, shoestring budget um, uh, psychological thriller. And I, I like a good shoestring budget psychological thriller. I really do. Even the ones that are not, like, super notable, they're just usually more fun than a fucking, you know, a, a low-tier blockbuster. Yeah. I mean, if I'm looking something kind of not overly thinky to watch but just a little thinky yeah i'm all about a high concept film with a fun central premise and a good you know psychological thriller and uh, exam's a great example of that there you go uh, i like that selection very much mr dylan stewart uh, my next selection is uh, another bit of experimentation in a in sort of a sociological kind of way mm-hmm. but it's um, not within the psychological thriller genre it's within the horror genre okay and that is the first saw film yeah okay i mean that's those are totally experiments yeah how far are you willing to go to stay alive yeah you know and uh you what, 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 How attached are you to the, the moral coil, or, or to, to a particular limb? Uh, in some cases, are, are you are you more attached to that limb than you are the mortal coil? Yeah, yeah, uh, man, yeah. That that first James Wan saw is it's super good. It's strong, dude. It holds up. I even think uh, part two holds up pretty well. Um, okay. Um, 
I, I could, wouldn't vouch for any of the others, but I kind of like uh, the the syringe pit in part two. It's just such a visually arresting image. I really like that. Um, good, good pick. Um, speaking of big blockbusters and things that seem like a bad idea, I do want to go ahead and give some love to um, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, oh, yeah. War of the Planet of the Apes, because Rise of the Planet of the Apes all starts with uh, experimentation, experiment. yeah. uh, an Alzheimer's experiment, and uh, a little bit of uh, human ape communication um, with uh, Andy Serkis's you know, at this point, legendary performance. I think it will continue to be legendary. I think we'll still be talking about Andy Serkis's um, performance capture as Caesar for several decades, I think. Whether or not performance capture really takes off and, you know, people start getting Oscars for performance captures or, you know, things like that, uh, whether or not becomes, you know, common, I think is irrelevant. I think what is relevant is how good Serkis's performances are. And, um, yeah, he's he's phenomenal as Caesar in all these films. I cannot wait for War of the Planet of the Apes. I'm very excited about it. But I think Rise uh, with the old, old James Franco is... Uh, really a strong film it's it's the least actiony of the three films because uh, it does seem like this new one's got some pretty big action set pieces and the first one does of course i mean these are blockbusters we're talking about at the end of the day but um it is a very small film now it ends up getting much bigger and being about um you know potential human extinction but this first film really is just about um our, our inability to not be shitheads to uh, things that scare us yeah um and ditto for the sequels, really. But I think very strong films uh, that I'm excited they've been so successful. I really am because uh, it, it does my heart good to see that that torch be passed on. Um, that, that torch that was lit by 1968's The Planet of the Apes, making big budget, you know, studio movies for, you know, for studio four quadrant films that are still like daring and engaged and thinking. And I'm glad to see that, that continue, uh, into this weird tentpole uh, structure that we find ourselves in with studio filmmaking. I, I'm excited uh, about those films. So that I think that that's going to end it for me. That, that was the one I wanted to go ahead and stop on. Well, my last one is also a big blockbuster. Okay. And that is another, again, a size experiment gone wrong. And in this case, it is, um, hey, you know what? I wonder if we could clone dinosaurs. I got to talk about Jurassic Park. Yeah, I mean, that's how, fair. How can you not talk about Jurassic Speaking Park? Speaking of Jurassic Park, we might have done this before. I want to go ahead and throw that out there. We might well, have done this game before. We may have played this game. Either on Jurassic Park or Event Horizon, if we've done it before. Yeah. Um, but, you know, our opinions change all the time. So there's a good chance we didn't talk about these movies. Yeah, we, we may have talked this game, but we have definitely picked different films. I would say almost certainly. I would be shocked if we picked the exact same ones, I honestly. think I would probably say The Fly Forever and Always and all the things. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, Ooh, I might have done Bright Frankenstein. Uh, <laughs> who can say? Doesn't matter. Not at all. We, guys, we've been doing this show for a long time. You don't remember either, probably. So uh, just a heads up. We might have done this on Jurassic Park. Uh, but good pick. I mean, what a, what a film. It's a great movie, and it is, it's a great idea. I mean, what if you did this, and you didn't think about Yeah, good job, Michael Crichton. Happen. Yeah. It could go very, very badly. Well, that's enough game playing, guys. I think, perhaps, it's time to get down to business. It's business. Now, Dustin, I don't know if you noticed, but I am uh, wearing just my socks right now. I, I um, you know what? It was hard for me not to notice. And that's because it's, these are my business socks. Ah. Yeah, these are the socks I do my business in. And my business is uh, not making love for two minutes. It is doing film analysis for 10 two minutes. Min- 10 minutes. <laughs> 10 minutes. <laughs> 10. Or 224 like a, episodes. Two, two to 10. 
two to ten. <laughs> you know, did I have a big lunch? <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, it's because uh, he's so intense. I am, no. Uh, so yeah, this, this film is all about death and all about uh, growing up and accepting the finality and imminency of death, I think. And I, I think it's very on the nose about that. I mean, you can't help it when it's about young people in medical school. I can't help kind of be about being in your mid-20s and starting to really reckon with your mortality. So, uh, I mean, I think we could probably, that's the big E on the I chart, as you said, uh, before we sat down to record, I think. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit before we get rolling into some more abstract stuff? Oh, what exactly are you asking? I, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure I'm right there. The big E in that um, mortality itself or the big E of, of whether or not there's an afterlife? Uh, well, you're right. The, the big E is the afterlife. I would say probably the second line of the chart is that, uh, hey, uh, when you're in your 20s, like, you know, you start having bags under your eyes and your hair starts going gray and uh, you start to really kind of feel the way of the world and you start thinking about the fact that uh, you start seeing people your age have kids and you start thinking about uh, your uh, designed obsolescence as a human being by you you mean other people not me but yes i know what you mean y the royal you yes, yes. um so i I, th I think the films I, I definitely the reason for centering this film around uh medical students as opposed to older doctors doing experiments certainly seems to be something about that very specific point of young adulthood. What is Xers, you know, wrestling with mortality? I, that's that's why they say there's a whole little line when they're in yeah. the diner. We talking. finally got something the baby boomers didn't get. Right. Yeah. Oh, it's de it's a this film feels like it was made in 1996. It does not feel like a 90 film. No, it, it is really does so not. decidedly Joel, Joel Schumacher's aesthetic is 1990s. Yeah. When you watch a Joel Schumacher movie, even like the number 23, which came out in like 07, you're like, oh, this movie feels like it's from the mid 90s. It does. Joel Schumacher is responsible. I, I, I'm going to go ahead and go out on a limb and make a broad statement. When you think of the cinematic language of the 1990s, Joel Schumacher is a big fucking part of that. Yeah, work. he's huge. He's colossal. Obviously, Quentin Tarantino matters a lot too. But. Yes, but I think, I don't know. I think Quentin Tarantino's look shaped. 90s pop culture, you know, especially Res Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, it kind of shaped the sort of films that were being made. But I think the, the like, stereotypical 90s, like, the look of Tarantino's movies is much more 1970s, obviously, because yeah. he's a fucking nerd and can't get over the 1970s. Really can't. Uh, he really... Well, we nobody can get over... I can't get over the 1990s, and I was about the age Tarantino was in the 70s, so Fair I mean, enough. there's probably something to say for that. But I think Schumacher really... His look is the look you're thinking about when you think about a 90s film. Yeah, um, I, I agree with that. But anyway, this this film is decidedly 1990s, decidedly a Gen X film. And yeah, I mean, the, the Gen X characters are... Oliver Platt's the one that kind of has this diatribe about, like, the history of human experimentation. And, uh, I mean, they even name-checked Timothy O'Leary. And it's funny they do, because as soon as they did... Like, before they did, I was like, oh, this is a metaphor for psychedelic experiences, clearly. Uh, and then they go ahead and name-check him. So mm -hmm. I, I think that's definitely on the table for a reason. People have done things, and now we've finally done the big thing. We've we've done it, and we've come back. Yeah. First they crossed oceans, and then they, they crossed uh, mental states, and now we are crossing... People on the moon. Yeah. Yada, yada, yada. Now we are doing something that nobody has done, uh, something that the baby boomers can't take from us. So, yeah, it is. how old is Schumacher? He's a baby boomer, isn't he? Uh, I would say he is definitely an old millennial, or not old millennial, old Xer, old Xer, or, okay. or a very young boomer. Okay, because he was like sixty-eight, probably by now. Yeah, I'd say that. Yeah, so he's no. Oh, maybe he's a buster. I bet he's born in sixty-eight. Oh, so. sixty-eight. Yeah, I bet he's a buster. Yeah, yeah I, I bet he's probably my mom's age, maybe a little bit older. Yeah. I don't think he's quite my dad's. I don't think he's in his close to his seventies yet. He but might be. Yeah, not quite a boomer though. I think. So, yeah. um, 
what what are your thoughts on this? Um, hit hit me with uh, the, what we were just talking about this this well, this there, thing about reckoning with your death um, in your mid twenties. Hit hit me with that. Well, there's a thing that happens. You know, having you know lived through the entirety of my twenties now, I can sort of look back on it a little bit. Um, he was born in 1939. So, I cannot believe yeah, that. Yeah, uh, Joel Schumacher decidedly a baby boomer. Wow. Yeah, we were very wrong. Interesting. Yeah, he's uh, 77 years old. I would not have guessed that. No, would not have either. He's um, but you know in your 20s. You do sort of have um, the first-time adult responsibilities, and, yeah. you know, th- those kind of things about growing up and feeling like you are an adult. But also, uh, this is the point at which some key relationships that you have, people start to die. It, yeah. it, it, it's just a thing that happens, you know. Well, unless you're like, you know, you or me or Julia Roberts in this film, right? And you're you're a little bit more aware of that than other people. But you know, and I think that's I think the film makes a good point of that is saying. Julia Roberts is not – and this, you know, there can be some, some gender wonkiness with this. But as the female of this group, she is much more emotionally uh, awake than, mm-hmm. these, than these boys um, because she experienced death at a very young age. And these guys are just starting to reckon with that. And that, that's more of a – it is a bit more freakish. You know, for the most part, childhood, adolescence, um, sometimes there is some death that touches those moments. But many, many people, mm-hmm. especially in this technological age of medical science and, and those sort of advances and safety advances and uh, the labor unions and movement, and there's a whole lot of reasons why people live longer and all those kind of things. Child mortality goes down yep. for various reasons. But um, what, what happens, though, is that as exercise experience this, and I think to a lesser extent boomers and to a greater extent millennials afterward, there's very little exposure to death for the bulk of this particular group of people. Yeah, you don't have people whose grandparents are, uh, you know, raised by some person in that town because their parents died in a, you know, a a freak uh, explosion or something. That shit happened. All the time in the teens and twenties, right? But in your but in your twenties, as you are aging, uh, you do see more people. You, you do see the occasional pure death happening with mm-hmm. with greater frequency, yep. and then loss of parents and of grandparents, mm-hmm. special aunts and uncles. Those kind of things begin yep. to happen as well, and you begin to realize. I'm not going to be here forever because I just spent a month in my mom's basement trying to figure out what all is here because she's gone now, and I don't know what to do with her cats. And making those kinds of decisions really makes uh, mortality begin to weigh very, very heavily um, on that particular aged psyche. I just got in a fight with my uh, cousin about a fucking clock. Oh, yeah. About a clock. Not me, literally. I mean, I'm just saying those are the situations you're going to find yourself right. in. You're oh, going to yeah. get in arguments with family members over over rugs, over fucking furniture. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that really, that once you start death, thinking about, once you start death, once you start thinking about death in those kind of weird practical terms instead of just purely philosophical terms, it becomes a whole different ballgame, I think. Well, then, then the existential thing sort of begins to follow that because then you realize this is not necessarily the things that matter. These, these are trivial things. It's the, it's the fruit of the sacred tree, right? right? I mean, now you have knowledge that other people don't have. Right. And I think a lot of fiction has played with this. Um, weirdly, as much as I pick on the franchise, uh, Harry Potter deals with this. Um, I can't believe that that's the thing that came to mind for me, but the, there's like the horses that you can only see if you've seen somebody die, right? right? And um, I, I think, but a lot of fiction deals with this that... Uh, uh, I think The Matrix, which we talk about all the time in the show, I'm trying to think of something we don't talk about all the time. But uh, there's a lot of fiction that deals with the idea that, like, once you have encountered death, you have some sacred, uh, forbidden knowledge that other people just don't have. Right. And I think Flatliners is dealing with that in a big way. 
Yeah, these people are getting it. And, of course, in this particular film, they're gaining a lot of this knowledge via the, their profession, that they are, yeah. they are surrounded yes. by death every day. Every single day. I mean, the first opening of the film is Kevin Bacon doing a very unsterile surgery in an attempt to save somebody's life. And the very next scene is uh, cadaver autopsies. Um, I think that's what they call it when you mess with a cadaver. Yeah. Maybe it's not an autopsy when it's a cadaver. Um, but anyway, they're, they're doing um, – dissection a dissection on cadavers mm-hmm. the next scene so this film is i mean definitely saying hey think about becoming a doctor like you're just going to be by dead people all the time and, and so it's moving away from that sort of avoidance that's been going on your entire life um as a child and as an adolescent where your parents or grandparents those around you have shielded you from funerals i've met many people in their 20s who have never been to a funeral don't know what this stuff is like. Bunch we, of fucking squares, well, if you ask me. I, well, I agree completely. <laughs> That's mean. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, you know, and I, I understand the desire to protect and those kind I do of things too. as well. But I, 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 I disagree with that impulse, but I understand it. Uh, but that being said, in your yeah, 20s, you're, you're, when your the, the shield like, is gone. Yeah, when your kid's 11 and you got to go put down Fluffy, you take that kid to the vet and watch Fluffy die. Right. I'm sorry. I think you say, hey, kiddo. Get used to it. One out of every one people dies. Yeah, man. I'm I'm right I'm right there behind Fluffy, kid. Like, yeah, get ready for it. And so you you've got 20 years to get ready for me to die. But it is traumatic in your 20s uh, for most people of the Xers and the millennial generation. And so this yeah. film is sort of a, a, a way to exercise some of that trauma. And of course, that does raise the next big question: What happens? Right. And the film. I don't know what the film does. I don't think the film knows what the film does. I think the film is torn between wanting to engage with the unknowability of death, but is also wanting to say they're definitely... Because I think the the film goes back and forth. The film is... The film is agnostic to the extent that it's not sure, but it definitely leans uh, to some sort of afterlife... Um, being a certainty. I, I think so. And I think what it does also is it leans into the horror genre, which does have a sort of a moral uh, conservative compass well, insofar and as... And a supernatural, like, reckoning. Right, yeah, that, that, that the things that we do... Um, they will come back. That um, And that reckoning will be supernatural. Your sins will find you out kind of thing. Yeah. Now, with uh, regard to... So the, uh, obviously the character that is most in the most physical danger from this is uh, Kiefer Sutherland. Everyone else is having some very serious emotional distress, but I think Kiefer Sutherland is the only one that's ever in physical danger. Right. Well, from himself, though, because it's all him. He, he's yeah. hallucinating. He's holding the uh, axe to attack himself. Yeah. You know, do that. So he's not actually seeing uh, young Billy, I believe. Yeah, Bi- Billy is not a real ghost i mean i think the film is very clear that Kiefer sutherland is accosting himself physically right so there's an extent to which it is all psychological brought on by this traumatic experience of death and then at the same time we see the atheist kevin bacon yelling um an apology to god for messing around with his territory yeah right and that is the moment at which Kiefer sutherland finally makes his Big recovery from his nine, ten minutes, you know, having been flatlined. And uh, so there is a weird sort of a supernatural interventionism that's well, going yeah, on there. Well, yeah, because if he had been brain dead for ten minutes, he would be a fucking vegetable, yeah. even if he, he did resume bodily functions. Zucchini land is what I believe they called it in the film, which yeah. was very funny. That is very funny. But somebody would be wiping Keith or Sutherland's ass if he was brain dead for ten minutes. Yeah. Like, you don't – when your brain's deprived of oxygen for that long, you don't come back. Yeah, you just so don't make it. That is the most supernatural moment in the film, I think, without a doubt. And so it does, it does those sort of strange things, but it is – I think what it really is trying to land on is that we need some sense 
that I think the film thinks anyway that we need some sense of moral judgment that there are wrongs that can be done and that those wrongs are not permanent that they're not forever yeah. that everyone I mean there is it, a sense of forgiveness there is a sense of forgiveness there there is a, there's an idea that there are ways in which you can make restitution there are ways in which you can move past those things and grow it's, it's, it's not that you're locked in that something uh, permanently sort of damns you um, yeah. up in well in, and I think for some characters it's a little bit more I mean there's like a sliding scale of who has the like the hardest thing to deal with like i think kevin kevin bacon's is the easiest he was mean to a girl in grade school yeah william baldwin has the next easiest he's just been a kind of a gross pig mm-hmm. right um julia roberts has the next most difficult she saw her dad kill himself right and she doesn't know like who do i who do i forgive who, who do i apologize to yeah she blames herself and it's yeah. not her that, and that's she has to realize she has to apologize to herself for being mad about it and then keep herself the hardest thing is he killed a kid yeah uh, it was a freak accident, but he did kill another kid when he was a kid. So I think there's like the sliding scale, right? It's the, the people that as the trauma gets more difficult, it takes longer in the film for them to reckon with the trauma. Right. But I think there definitely is a sense that every, everyone, every one of these acts can become back from, can be come back from, returned from. I don't know. This is a hard word to phrase. That was a really hard sentence to string together. <laughs> but, the, but the idea, I think, is that you can do something about it. You can mm-hmm. you can find redemption. You can solace. find some sense of solace. Atonement is the word that's used at one point in the film. Yeah. That you can do some things to make make it right. You can, uh, again, you know, find ways to, uh, to, to work your steps, so to speak, you know, uh, when it comes to that. And, yeah. uh, and, and make your apologies. Um, as necessary, and, and find some ways to uh, make restitution, if at all uh, possible. Is there any restitution Kevin Bacon's character can do for this girl, other than he can say, "I feel terrible about," and that was it. That's I all. I wish took. I hadn't done that. I agree that it was terrible, and none mm. of the things I said were true. That's healing both for her mm-hmm. and for him. Well, and that's the thing, right? Is um, she won't tell him she remembers it at first, and then she goes, "Hey, I do remember it, and I'm glad you do too." And I forgive you. Yeah. Thank you. No, thank you for remembering it. Thank you for remembering that you were a bad person. Right. Because I was sitting there watching this movie and I'd seen it. I'd seen it probably 1990s when I'd seen it. I've never seen this before. And uh, as I was watching it, I'd forgotten how this was going to go down. I'm like, man, is she going to even remember who he is? Is he going to be carrying this around like he hurt this person and she has no idea? Oh, she know, always remembered. Yeah, she always remembered. But that's the thing you wonder. He about. was the one that forgot. Yeah. And it was the forgetting that was like causing him this. Uh, this need to help people recklessly. Right. right. I think that's a big part of it. And I think that's, that's one of the strengths of this film is the thing that people, the, the things that the characters are reckoning with really inform their life choices, right? Kiefer Sutherland is obsessed with this, this journey. Uh, I think because he wants to know where he sent this other kid, right? Yeah. Julia Roberts is obsessed with this because she wants to know where her dad went. Right. Right. Uh, Baldwin uh, Baldwin's the one that's the least easy to deal with. Um, I, I think for him, what it comes down to is there was a girl he loved, and he's having to reckon with all the the false, the, all the times he's told people he loved them and didn't mean it. Right, and, and that informs his inability to like connect with people and to have real commitment with people. Right, right, and so I think everybody's psycho- psychology and psychosis is informed by their trauma, uh, as in real life. And I think that's one of the strengths of this film and from a plotting standpoint. I think the formal or the, the, the fundamental moral point of the story is that everything we do matters is what Kiefer Sutherland says. It's very from, karmic, yeah. yeah. From, but, and, and the idea is that even though it's not taking a hard stand as to what they're actually experiencing because there is an extent to which everything that happened despite the sort of deus ex machina that happens at the end, that, which, which is never sort of telegraphed with like you know smoky lights and wings and those yeah. kind of things where an angel comes down and kisses Kevin Bacon 
Kiefer, or not Kiefer, yeah. but Kiefer Sutherland. Go it, forth and send no more. There's it, no, no shit like that. No, no, nothing like that. However, there's this idea that whether or not you believe there's something after – what, regardless of where that is, we can all agree that what we do now matters. The yeah. way we treat people yeah. matters and that the way we care for one another is important. Uh, it may indeed echo in eternity. That is a thing that's possible, and, and perhaps that may be the only place in which some of those wrongs can ever be righted. But neither here nor there. On this side of whatever eternity happens to be, on this side, we can indeed forgive, be forgiven, extend forgiveness, accept forgiveness, and uh, be a people, you know, full of, to use a theological world, be a people full of grace, be a gracious yeah. uh, humanity. And again, avoid doing things that are intentionally going injure people, that we consider the effect of our decisions on other people, and that we aren't so reckless uh, with the way that we live our lives. And we can do this, of course, very faithfully, agnostically, atheistically, or you know, within a particular religious system. And I think one of the only downsides for the film here as we move into this conversation is, and I, I can't tell if it's a, a studio note or it's Schumacher not being totally sure what he wants to do, but the, the film kind of wants to have its cake and eat it too mm-hmm. with the supernatural elements of the film. Uh, I, I think it's playing around with the idea that maybe it is just because as Kevin Bacon mentions, I don't know, maybe there's some sort of hormone or chemical release and that's what we're all, you guys are experiencing. Even after he does it, he never full on says, I, I went somewhere. I definitely went somewhere. He, he's more certain of it than everyone than he was before. He's definitely certain something happened. It does, he's not sure. And again, the, the, I think at first the film, wants to be concrete and say they definitely went somewhere. And then it's doing it, well, maybe reality is perception. Maybe perception is reality. And maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe they did just have, you know, the DMT molecules that go that exist in the human brain did just fire off when they were dying. And maybe that was it. But then by the third act, it comes back around to, nope, def- definitely something happened. Definitely there is actual an afterlife. And I wish it would have picked one or the other. Yeah. Um, I think for the kind of movie it is, let's say from the trailers, I think this new Flatliners kind of seems like it's probably going to be a little bit more um, spoopy. Um, so maybe there is going to be some more concreteness with that. With the film that this Flatliners is, though, I think it would have made more sense to always just say, well, it, it might have just been all in their heads. And that doesn't matter. And I think that's what the film wants to do, but it does lean a little bit too much into the supernatural, I think. And I think if they had kept it a little bit more agnostic, it would have been a little bit more interesting. Yeah, I think the reason why they make their way into that, again, more, um, you know, sort of traditionally religious sort of ground is because the, 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 the movie is trying to find a narrative way to reckon with how you make restitution with people who are already dead. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. That, that we do, to an extent, whether you believe in ghosts or not, all live with ghosts. And that's, I mean, that's really the sort of metaphoric thing that's being dealt with here is you've got to handle your ghosts. Well, it was a way, yeah, it's a way to literize the metaphor of the only way to deal with your ghosts is to deal with yourself. Right. Um, And it's kind of hard to uh, make that, make that a metaphor without the metaphor being a little literal. Yeah. You know what I mean? Exactly. Um, I, I mean, I think it's doable. I think the film struggles to do it, though, and I think they decided to take the easy way out, which was lean a little bit more supernatural. Yeah, which, uh, which I wasn't particularly mad about. No, me neither. I, I mean, I'm, it, it's fine. I think, I think it hurts the movie, but I don't hate it. Right. I, I, like, I like certain aspects of it, for sure. I, I, I am kind of intrigued by Kevin Bacon as the, the atheist who says, 
maybe you're real, maybe you're not, but I know I fucked with something I was not supposed to. Yeah, well, uh, see, that's what I don't like. See, I, I, I'm interested in it. I don't like it either because it leans into that the conservatism of the horror genre. Right, the Prometheus sort the, of Yeah, mythology. the stealing. Whereas I, yeah, no, generally speaking, I'm of the opinion, no, we should do that. Don't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. Um, we should, no, the fire is for everyone. It's part of this world. It's for everyone. But at the same time, I do kind of, I'm, I'm intrigued by it. The idea that maybe there is a line that I'm not supposed to cross and figuring out where that line is can be very difficult. Well, I think that is really where you want to find yourself is a place where you do ask the question, not only the question if you could, but also the question if you should. You should, should exactly. And, and, and then may perhaps go ahead. And say, I shouldn't have. And, or, you know, again, try to, when you do, think, what are the eth- ethical repercussions if I do this? If I find a way to clone a human being, if I find a way to go to the, the afterlife and somehow come back, if I find a way to do how am I going to do these things in responsible, um, unreckless kind of manner? Yes. That's the real question. And I think the accusation against science is sometimes science um, blunders too far forward without thinking. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have some of the things and some of the problems that we have now. But also I think the uh, conservative, conservatizing religious elements of the world always put the brakes on way too much. Absolutely. And, and, and I think – the the film doesn't necessarily do this because I do think it falls on the conservative sort of Promethean mythology sort of side of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think somewhere in the middle is the truth that this is what you should do. It's like do do co- B- both and baby both yeah. and but be careful. Yeah, and and you should consider carefulness. You shouldn't yeah. just say oh just because I can you should maybe you shouldn't. It's always about the third way. Uh, Oppenheimer shouldn't have made that bomb. No, right. But it's probably good to know that we could do that. Right. It's probably good to know that we can be that bad to each other, and it's good to know that we can be that bad, so we're not that bad. But yeah, probably better if he didn't. Mm-hmm. But you never know until you do. And I think, I think, I, I wish the film did. I think the film has a foot in that idea that we're just we're just now engaging with. I think it has a foot in that, but it's just a foot. Yeah, I think it doesn't, got, doesn't lean in very hard. No, and that's and that's probably a, again that's uh, comes back to the film having its cake and eating it too. Yeah, so there you go, dear listener. That's what we're thinking analysis-wise uh, with this film. And it is very interesting. I think it does raise some interesting conversations. But, um, you know, we'd like to hear from you again. We've already told you about the social media means by which that can happen. Uh, please, please chime in. Dalton, um, how, oh, go ahead. I have a question for you. Sure. If you could, would you and should you? I don't know if I should or not, but I would. Yeah, me too. Totally I would too. Would. I totally would too. Totally would. Yeah. Now, again, if we assume it's a, it's a guaranteed trip there and a guaranteed trip back oh if you can guarantee me coming back yeah 100 well, percent. yeah 100 percent. there's no should but, you though that, is the question should well, the question, so the answer to could you is we both would if we could should you i have responsibilities same here staying I think, alive yeah i i probably shouldn't yeah there are people who like are attached to me um and um i shouldn't roll the dice on my um my uh, mortality uh, because there are people who are invested in me it, it, it's, a, it's a very selfish risk for me to take same uh, I kind of think I still would. No, I see. I probably would not, unless again, I, it was a hundred percent. Yeah, if, if there is a, if you've watched, you know, a hundred other people come back and you know, no problem. And hundred out of hundred out of hundred went and came back, no problem. Like we have a way of doing this now. You can do it too. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't be. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't be Kevin Bacon, but I'd probably be. Uh, you know, the student uh, in the class that uh, is taught by a guy that learned from Kevin Bacon. Yeah, yeah. Sign me up. Yeah. So uh, I was just curious. I wanted to throw that out there before we, before we closed out. Dear listener, if you could, would you? 
And do you think you should? And do you think you should? I would love to hear that on Twitter and the via, via, various mm-hmm. um, other means of Variable. Social, uh, social media. Well, hey, it's verdict time. So, shelf or trash? Elves are instead. Dalton, go. It's a trash. Okay. Yeah, it's trash. I'm sorry. Uh, mm-hmm. It's fine. I've been trashing a lot of movies lately. Same. Um, it's fine. Uh, again, like I said, I, I don't hate it. I I'm, makes me excited, uh, or at the very least, much more intrigued in the the remake uh, or see. I guess Kiefer Sutherland is reprising his role as Nelson's as Doctor Nelson. So, so it's a sequel. I guess it is a sequel of sorts. Um, but yeah, there's there's even better Joel Schumacher movies. Um, I I would recommend Lost Boys, which we watched before, is yes. honestly a less technically good film. It's actually worse, technically speaking, but I think it's a lot more fun, and I think it's a lot more culturally relevant, um, Lost Boys is. So I, I would say you go that to that route first. I would even say if you want to talk about other high-concept Joel Schumacher movies, I would go with his other teaming with Kiefer Sutherland, Phone Booth, mm-hmm. uh, which is not a great movie by any stretch of the imagination, but is a very, ter- a very tense and terse film. And, uh, again, it's got a great performance from Kiefer, um, a great performance from Colin Farrell, and, uh, as I recall, a pretty damn good performance from... Uh, Forrest Whitaker. Um, I like the movie quite a bit. Um, I haven't seen it in years and years and years, but I remember really uh, enjoying it uh, when I was like 15. So I, I would say you watch that again first, uh, long before you, you get around to Flatliners. I think Joel Schumacher is such a specific and strange filmmaker um, the, with some real uh, highs and lows throughout his career. Um, I think you could probably do better than Flatliners. Um, in terms of other films that reckon with death, I, I struggle to think of anything. Uh, the only one that I think that kind of comes to mind immediately is the HBO series Six Feet Under, mm, uh, which I've yeah. only seen like the first season and a half of. But I think that's a, a, a really great piece of fiction that reckons with death in a, a really fun way. Um, I would also recommend Brian Fuller's TV series, Pushing Daisies, mm. um, which is, you know, th- definitely much lighter than this film. It's very um, uh, Wes Anderson-esque uh, in kind of its storybook color palette. Um, but I really love that show. So those are two television series that deal with death that I think um, I would be more interested in before uh, Flatliners. I can't think of any movies, though. Dustin, what about you? What are, what's your verdict? What are your else's or instead? It's trash, man. Yeah. I mean, I like this movie, and I again, I, I like you. I, it has uh, wet my appetite to mm. uh, see the sequel. Let's go see it together. In. Let's do it. It's yeah. a date. Let's do it for okay. sure. Yeah. Um, I want to I check it out. Maybe we'll do a quick little fast little podcast drop. Yeah, maybe we will. We might just do that. And so, yeah, it's fun and it's worthwhile um, insofar as all of that is concerned. But, yeah, it's not – you don't need to own it. You know, it happens to be streaming right now. Catch it now if you can, if you want, whatever. Don't seek it out, though. No. For sure, for sure. Um, my Schumacher uh, recommendation is also dealing with your past, what you've done, and reckoning with your demons. It's already been mentioned. Which no is way. The number twenty-three. Are you one of the defenders of the number twenty-three? I am a defender. I of am the too. I like the number twenty-three a lot. I think it's pretty okay. Yeah, it's I, not yeah, great, but it's very okay. It's very okay, and it's yeah. it's it's fun and silly and fucking classic Schumacher camp. Yeah, and I think that might be the problem with uh, Flatliners. It doesn't have any of that Schumacher camp. Yeah, not even a little bit. It's one of his least campy films, and the number twenty three is super campy. It is like it, it is a man in his, who would have been so he's seventy seven now. He would have been in his late sixties when they made that. So it's like a man in his late sixties, early seventies, playing with like goth neo noir mm-hmm. camp. Also, it's fascinating. Nine horses on the soundtrack. I'm gonna tell you the band again. The band is called Nine Horses. Also, uh, listen to them. She wants revenge on the soundtrack. Oh, she wants revenge is on the soundtrack. Yeah, uh, tear you apart. Very uh, featured, very prominently in that film. Yeah, I think I just changed her outro music. 
But anyway, um, I think I agree with that. I I'll tell you what I uh, I listened to uh, She Wants Revenge versus uh, two albums yesterday actually or day before yesterday. That shit holds up, man. Yeah, I didn't think it would. I, I was like, there's no way I'm going to like this. This this is a band that 16 year old angsty Dalton liked. Uh, and I, the, the tracks that are about, oh, I'm so sad that you left, do nothing for me anymore. But the songs that are about, hey, let's just, like, do some sex, they hold up. Man. They're <laughs> real good. They're real solid. That's funny. Yeah. There are songs about, like, hey, let's just, like, dance till we're real sweaty. Yeah. I'm, I'm all about it. They're, they hold up real well. So um, my other pick, though, for films. For, um, for, for, the, for the shoe? For the for the, for the, for oh, the no, Wait, is there another shoe marker? I'm done, oh, okay. with, I'm done, with, I'm done with shoe. Darn. Um, no, now I got to get French. Okay, hit Gaspar No Way. We got to see End of the Void. Okay, yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, I for this. really need to catch up yeah, with that. Where, where basically uh, a character dies within the few, first few minutes of the movie, hangs around a long time, mm-hmm. as I guess you might call something of a hungry ghost if it's, yeah. if it's in a Buddhist sort of framework, and then something else happens. I'll tell you what, here's a film I didn't think even just now uh, thought about, which surprised me. One of my favorite films about reckoning with death, The Gray. Oh, The Gray. Uh, which is yeah. a film that uh, I know you like quite a bit as well, that we just have different. Uh, opinions on the interpretation of yeah but uh man i I can't believe i didn't think about that it's just been such a a long time since i've talked about that movie it doesn't come to mind immediately anymore but uh love that i think i think you would be better off is there anything other i think enter the voids a really good example uh is there anything that you think tickles that um traditional narrative with surrealist elements that flatliners does but maybe does a little bit better then End of the Void? Something with a little bit more traditional structure and narrative. Some uh, kind, of, kind of like Flatliners. that has a more traditional structure, uh, but also with those surrealist elements that Flatliners m- has. Maybe Robin Williams' What Dreams May Come? Okay, yeah. I've always been wanting to get around to that. I, I hear that it's got its defenders. It, well, I don't love it. Um, I, I'm going to tell you I'm right now. I'm just trying to think of something that's more successful um, than something that, again, is, is along the same lines of What Dreams Will Come or Flatliners, but maybe is a little bit better. Um, and I, if anybody knows of that movie, I want to watch it. Yeah. I can't think of anything off the top of my head for whatever reason. Yeah, I mean, I'm not coming up with anything immediately right now myself. So, you know, I have to I have to think about it. I guess there's a way in which if you put yourself in a proper mindset, you could watch Sunset Boulevard as yeah. a flashback, you know, in those last moments of death because he is dead in the pool to start with. Well, I mean, that, and now we're going to uh, the, uh, oh shit, the short story about the, the Civil War guy. Uh, on the bridge and uh, the rope there these uh oh i know what you're talking about yeah, yeah i can't the name's gone for me too but i know what you're yeah. talking about the highwayman or something oh, else. yeah what yeah, yeah, yeah the, it's, it's something the whole short story is a uh a uh, seconds before dying hallucination mm-hmm. yeah love that i love that custom oh hey brazil there we go brazil there yeah you go. there we go that's that's something like that so okay there's there's a lot of things you could watch instead of flatliners uh Speaking of, we should probably tell you what we're going to be watching next week. You should probably tell me. Uh, well, so, Dustin, here's what happened. Uh, we had slotted Buckaroo Bonsai. Oh, that's right. We made a list. We made a list. Guess what? We're actually going to be watching uh, an accidental Schumacher double feature. We're going to be watching A Time to Kill. Oh, my Starring goodness. Matthew McConaughey and Samuel J. Uh, Sam- Sam- Samuel J. Fox is what I almost <laughs> said. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, we're going to be watching A Time to Kill with Matthew McConaughey and Samuel Jackson. Um, and Sandra Bullock. And Sandra Bullock. Oh, that's right. Uh, no, actually, I think you're wrong. Am I? I could I be. I think you're wrong. Uh, I forget who the female lead is in that. But uh, that's what we're watching. It's an accidental uh, uh, Schumacher double feature. That's um, funny. So, yeah, it's just kind of the way it worked out. But I'm excited now. I almost called an audible and said, well, let's do something else. But I decided, no, 
let's do something from the early 90s Schumacher and then the late 90s Schumacher and kind of compare and contrast a little bit and see that's what we think. That's going to be an interesting exercise. Yeah, well, because this is, uh, we're going to be doing another film that's all about uh, the myth of redemptive, uh, well, a film that reckons with redemption, but through the lens of the myth of redemptive violence. Mm. And that's what we're going to be reckoning with next week when we watch Joel Schumacher's A Time to Kill. So I'll tell you what, guys, we'll keep watching. Um, actually, you keep watching and we'll keep talking and we'll see you all next time. Good Trash Genrecast is a product of Good Trash Media. For more info on all things Good Trash, go to GoodTrashMedia.com. Our intro music this week is, as always, Night Call by Kavinsky and Lovebox. And our outro music is Kesha with Die Young. Die Young.